0: Aliens and flying saucers This is all in a... Hey, greetings and welcome to the 88th episode of Two Writers and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former sports illustrated scene writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a contributor to the athletic. The music you're listening to is croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to speeches to novels to love letters to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Nora Princiati, who covers the New England Patriots for the Boston Globe. And this was a cool one for me because I caught Nora on the Monday after the Super Bowl. So we talked all about her Sunday, all about covering Brady and Belichick, all about how a young woman who graduated from George Washington University in 2016, 2016, just wrapped up her third Super Bowl trip. It's far more entertaining than Patriots 13 Rams 3, and it's right now on Two Riders, singing Yang. All right, Nora, so first of all, Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Sure thing. Before we get into the Super Bowl, before we get into blah, 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 I'm holding in front of me your farewell column from the Hatchet GW student newspaper. Um, (laughs) Way, way back in 2016, when I was a boy of 44, you wrote, when I was hired as a Hatchet sports editor, I knew that's what I was signing up for. What I didn't know, though, was why I was signing up for it. Not many little girls dream about becoming sports writers when they grow up, and I certainly hadn't. The hatchet was supposed to be a hobby, just one of the clubs you join in college, not something where people would depend on me, not something where I cared about that much, not something where failure or letting others down was a real possibility. That's the thing about getting close to the action. There's always a chance you get hit. For the hatchet, I never found anything that made me want to take that risk. I was always a kid growing up, but preferred to watch my cousins play Monopoly because I didn't want to lose. Even in school, I really never had a favorite subject, but didn't do well in a class. I could always just move on to the next thing. At the hatchet, though, I realized pretty quickly that I was playing for keeps. This job becomes your identity, and how well you do it starts to feel very personal. You wrote that three years ago, like not even three years ago, and you just covered your third Super Bowl for the Boston Globe, which is, it's like equal parts impressive and bullshit for any young writer who's like, <laughs> ah, fucking A, goddammit, preps. I'm guessing this has lived up to what you wanted it to be. Is that is that fair to say?
1: Oh my gosh. It's way surpassed it. I think that thing that I wrote in college was coming from a place of what I, you know, fell ass backwards into this thing and then really loved it and kind of redid my whole plan or at least erased my whole plan and was like, I'm just going to try to do this until someone tells me that I absolutely can't anymore. And no one has. So far, I still think they might at some point, but at least I got three Super
0: Bowls out of it. So it's been pretty good. How exactly did this happen? You went to GW. What was your major when you got to GW? Uh,
1: Political science and history.
0: And you did not know what you wanted to do?
1: I (laughs) No, I I did. I had a pretty solid idea. I wanted to study international law and I wanted to be a war crimes prosecutor.
0: This is different. (laughs) It's a little different. All right. So you, you know, you start working for a student newspaper, you get an internship at the Boston Globe. How did this happen so quickly that now you're covering, you were one of the patriot writers for the Boston Globe? Like how'd that happen?
1: So yeah, I joined the newspaper in college really basically because there was this girl named Chloe Sorvino at the student org fair who was like, Hey, I like your shoes. And I was like, well, she seems cool. And I heard that you're supposed to join clubs in college to make friends. So maybe I'll do this. And then they had openings in sports and in news, and I did both. And the first editor's job that opened up was in sports. That got me covering college basketball at GW, the biggest sport. I wouldn't go so far as to call it big in general. And I pretty quickly was doing a beat. And there's so much media in DC. The Hatch is a great college paper. I traveled a little bit. And this is such a cheesy cliche, but I just fell in love with doing it. It was like, Oh my God, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to stop doing this. You know, I'll scrap going to law school, at least straight out of college. And just like I said, kind of ride this out. And then, um, I had the sports internship at the globe the summer after I graduated. And at the end of it, I was like an hour away from calling and accepting. Um, and I wasn't even that bummed about it, but I was going to take a part-time job at SB Nation and probably like waitress or get some other jobs so that I could pay rent along with it. And my old boss, Joe Sullivan, called me and said, hey, so we can't hire you full-time, but we need someone to help cover the patriots this season and it would be every day full travel and it's funny because i think joe's amazing he's like Mm -hmm. one of the best people i've ever met and he also has a little bit of an you know old newspaper mentality when the staff was bigger and everything so he was like i'm so sorry we can't hire you full time but do you want to cover the patriots and i was like doing a jig being like, this is the greatest news I possibly could have had. And the gist was that um, Mike Whitmer, who had been on the beat for the Globe, had left. But there was a hiring freeze. They couldn't, you know, add a position, but they needed another warm body to be in Foxborough. And, and what management had sort of said was, well, you can keep the intern for, you know, as long as you need. So that's how... That's how that happened for me. And then at the end of the season, which was the uh, Falcon Super Bowl, the big comeback in Houston, I took a job in D.C. covering the Redskins for the Washington Times. I did that for, I think, five months. And right around the start of the next season, the Globe brought me back to cover the Patriots. And that's where I've been
0: since. I really wish you had said to him, you know... Your offer sounds okay, but I have a pretty good waitressing gig waiting me. And the the opportunity to freelance for SB Nation is sort of caught, you know, it's been a lifelong dream. So I got to say no to this one. Sorry.
1: Yeah. I, I wonder how that would have gone over. That's, that's my sort of, that's the thing that I put in my pocket. I was like, I was willing to do it. You know, I was going to go do it. I was going to go have, you know, this crappy apartment and probably cry a lot, but I was going to do it. I promise. Then of course, didn't have to, which I sort of feel guilty about, but I'm not guilty enough to not do it.
0: All right. So I have a theory. This isn't where I was going to go with this podcast, but you actually are, I feel like you are the personification of this. So I teach, I live in California and I teach uh, sports writing at a college out here and I tell my students, and I really mean this, like, so I'm 46 and I always say, for me, this is not a great time to be a sports writer. You know, now I write, I write books mainly. It does okay, blah, blah, blah. But it would not be a great time if I were the guy covering the Patriots or covering the Redskins or whatever. And, you know, they're cutting back and blah, blah, Like, not a great time for me. I have a wife. I have two kids. College is coming. Not great. If I'm you and I'm in my early to mid-20s, it's a pretty great time to be a sports writer. Because I feel like in at the same time, they're getting rid of people who are making – whatever, 150,000, 160,000, 200,000, whatever they've been doing it for a long time, they still need people to do those jobs. Enter more recent college graduates who are gonna get hands-on experience that they would. You would have been working in a community paper for two years. Then maybe you would have been bumped up to the weekly, the daily in some small town. And then 10 years down the road, hopefully you're covering something for the globe. I just feel like for your age and for your sort of era, this isn't so bad. Or am I being callous and kind of assholic in saying that?
1: Well, I definitely can't say that it's bad, you know. I mean, it it helped me, and I would like to think that when I was an intern, I I did a good job. But seriously, I they needed a warm body, and you're absolutely right. It's much easier to get a warm body. That's 22, I guess I was then, and is not location attached. You know, I could have, I could go anywhere, I could move anywhere, I could stay anywhere. The Globe pays their interns pretty well, but I was getting paid as an intern and it was a pretty easy thing to slide me in as. And I was just thrilled because the experience was so good. So I think you're right.
0: So yesterday was your, th- your third Super Bowl you covered. And, um, I'm really fascinated by sort of what your job was with this game because you wrote one story and it was good. It was very good. It was, it was about sort of Patrick Chung. And afterwards your your lead was, uh, the Patriots defense was rolling, confident, dominant, and shutting uh, out the Rams when the right arm of hybrid safety Patrick Chung snapped, tackling Todd Gurley at the start of the third quarter of Super Bowl 53. Was it bad, Jason McCourty asked Matthew Slater. I think he broke his arm, Slater replied. Chung did break his arm, he said after the game, falling at the wrong angle. And you wrote this long piece about Patrick Chung, and it was really good. But it seems like your job in many ways, but tell me if I'm wrong was to sort of live tweet the Super Bowl. Because you tweeted the hell out of the Super Bowl, and there's was like a nonstop. I was actually following you on Twitter as we were watching the Super Bowl. Is that just a side perk that the Boston Globe get got when they hired Nora to do this?
1: I would put tweeted the hell out of the Super Bowl on my tombstone if I could. There you go. No charge. I, I guess side perk is the best way to put it. We all tweet. I'm probably just more of a... An, expansive idiot when I tweet than my more esteemed colleagues. We don't really talk about Twitter all that much with my editors or colleagues. It's just sort of we're expected to, and we all like to do it anyway. So Mm -hmm. I'm just sitting there sort of stream of consciousness responding to things. So that's what you were following. Usually my job on game days is to... Find one thing, find one angle that either goes really deep and specific into a small moment, like usually an important moment, but, you know, I I really like to have a narrow focus or do something that without being a kind of cheesy atmospheric thing comes from being there. So that's sort of what I was trying to do there is that I just remembered sitting and seeing Chung get hurt and you know it's a close game he does all these things he basically plays three and a half positions and it did seem like something that could derail them and then it didn't so when I went down to the locker room in the press conference area after the game I kind of gambled because the way that Super Bowl post games work is that there's one room where there's all these podiums where most of the players are going to go get seated and then everybody, you know, clusters around them and yells questions. It's highly undignified. But then there is a locker room where some of the younger guys who aren't going to go to the podium will be soon after they get off the field. But most of the players are going to trickle in really slowly and they're not going to be there for very long. They're not expecting to talk to the media the bulk of the time in there. So it's not usually when you're on a newspaper deadline and and you need to get what you need and then get out, you would usually go to the podium area. But I kind of gambled when I got down there because I thought I really want to find Chung. Because normally, if someone got hurt in a game, they wouldn't be around. They wouldn't be available. They wouldn't talk to you, at least not in Patriot World. But I just thought, they just won the Super Bowl. And he's also going to have to get his jersey off somehow. And he's wearing an air cast and a sling. And I just think that he's going to go through there. And, you know, I I know him. We have a good, good rapport. And I just thought, eh. Then he'll tell me if he broke his arm and I bet he'll give me something about, you know, why he went back out there and blah, 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 blah. So that felt like something that was going to be at least somewhat unique, which is always nice. You know, you don't want to feel like you wrote something that six other people wrote, um, which when there's a bajillion other people covering a Super Bowl is easier said than done sometimes. So that's kind of how that happened is I talked to him and then kind of filled it in with other players. And it helped that their secondary made, I thought, the two biggest plays of the game. So it kind of made it easy to, to fill that in and have the same guys talk about those plays and also answer questions about what it meant to them when he came back and when he wouldn't take the card and and friendships and relationships and all that good sports nonsense.
0: I mean, I remember covering multiple World Series and I always hated it. Cause I felt like could not get a moment alone with anyone, even if it was someone you knew well, even if it was a guy who wasn't even that significant. Once you start talking to someone, 70 other people rush over cause they don't want to be the one who misses out. So you, you find Patrick Chung somewhere in the locker room. Do you actually get seven minutes alone with him?
1: I think I got three minutes alone with him, <laughs> but that was a pretty weird circumstance, right? Because. This is, frankly, a player who's probably not supposed to be talking to anyone. That's the normal injury policy. But again, it's just, you know, it, it, I think with, with the Super Bowl, it's it's a blessing and a curse because it's so weird and chaotic that people are just, once you can get to them, they're actually a little bit looser and more relaxed. And, you know, it's, it's the end of the road. There's less of a chance that they're going to have to go into Gillette Stadium on Monday or Tuesday or whatever and and get yelled at for saying something they shouldn't have and everyone's just kind of happy and calm but you have to fight through six dozen people I do think that when you're in the locker room because it's the secondary area you can get people and I find that I don't know maybe there's something about you kind of try to look intimidating and angry to other people. And if you have someone to yourself project, a, don't come over here. I'll be mad at you. You don't want that. But so I got him for a couple minutes alone, but yeah, for the most part, you're just, you know, sharing, sharing people's time with a zillion other people.
0: I got to say, wait, Nora, how old are you? 25, 24, 24. I got to say, if a, if I see a 24 year old for trying to project, don't come over here. Or I'll get mad at you. I'm sort of thinking, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, Junior, right? I'll I'll take that into consideration.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not very intimidating. So yeah, it it wouldn't normally work. I just think in this case, it was like, the guy had his arm in a sling. I think some people felt like, oh, we're not supposed to do this. And Mm -hmm. I was just, you know, stubborn enough to be like, well, I'm going to do it anyway.
0: You tweeted earlier today, you said, to be quite honest, I thought the game was really interesting to watch. And I also spent a considerable amount of time jamming out to Maroon 5 in second grade. Now, I consider Maroon 5 the modern equivalent of Nickelback, but that's another issue. I thought it was a horrible game. I thought it was boring. I thought it was lifeless. I never thought the Rams were in it, even though it was a close game. It just, I just thought it was the most boring thing to watch on TV ever. And I wonder, being there and covering it, are you seeing it in a different way? Is that what makes it interesting because you're actually – looking at it in a different way than just some guy eating chips on his couch.
1: No, I I don't think that's why we have different takes on it. Honestly, we have little monitors at our seats and, you know, you you watch a play on the field and then maybe you watch a couple on the monitor. You have a little headset in where you can hear Tony Romo, Tony Romoing. So I don't know that in terms of the sort of visual football experience. It's all that different. I, for the most part, agreed with you that I never thought the Rams really had a shot, except that fluky things happen. The Like the, one of the reasons that I settled on the that Chung thing was just that when he got hurt, I just had this feeling where I was like, this kind of opens the door for weird things. And the Patriots have had some some games recently, particularly one in Miami, where weird things happen. And so I was at least mentally open to the fact that there could be something crazy where things could change in an instant. But I, for the most part, agree with you that the Rams weren't in it at all. I just, one, love defense. Mm -hmm. secondary play in particular, I could watch Stephon Gilmore play cornerback for the rest of my life and be a happy camper. So that has something to do with it, is that I thought it was really fun watching him against Brandon Cooks. I also just thought it was interesting that you had Bill Belichick and Wade Phillips, I would argue, kind of, I mean, I don't want to say pantsing, but really schooling Sean McVay and to a pretty decent extent, Josh McDaniels, both of whom are kind of in this hot young offensive mind vein that every owner is tripping over themselves to hire some, you know, copy of as a head coach. And these two old guys who've done it forever and who are on the defensive side, just put on a clinic and what the Patriots did, you know, I think one of the reasons that I thought it was interesting was that I've watched the Patriots play pretty much, I mean, not exclusively, but just a really heavy amount of man coverage all season. And then they just got to the Super Bowl and decided to play zone. And we should expect that of them because they change all the time, but it's still to me, interesting to see it in action. So I think that's, really what drew me into it. And it was still close, you know, until the end, it it was close, which like I said, it opens up the, the opportunity for something crazy to happen.
0: I just want to say when I was a kid growing up, there was a, uh, there was a twilight zone episode where a kid got three wishes and he had a genie and he made three wishes and all the wishes wound up coming back and being awful. Like you wish for a limo driver with a mind of his own. And he ends up getting this limo driver. And he has a mind of his own, so he drives him all over the place and off a cliff. And you just said, um, I can watch Stefan Gilmore play defense for the rest of my life. And I actually had an, an image of that Twilight Zone episode and poor Nora at age 83 <laughs> watching videos nonstop of Stefan Gilmore play defense for the rest of her life. And maybe it doesn't turn out as great as you hope. So be careful what you wish. for. Maybe not.
1: That's good advice. Not videos, but if I could do it in person, he's, he's really just spectacular.
0: Before you continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang... Quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey Perlman, who, on behalf of 503 Sports, will help me perform a dramatic reenactment of Bill Belichick's stoic post Super Bowl press conference. All right, Casey, you ready? Yes. Coach, how do you feel?
1: I'm pleased with the win.
0: Are you happy with how Tom played? Yes. Coach, Now that you're 66, what does this mean to you legacy-wise?
1: To tell you the truth, I don't think about these things.
0: Coach, what are you wearing?
1: Hot diggity dog. I've been waiting for someone to ask me that. It's a throwback Orlando Renegades jersey from 503 Sports. I love this thing so much. It's hot, right? 503 is Cardi B.
0: Obviously, you're in the press box. You're covering the game. You're watching the game. You're tweeting about the game. When do you head down? Like, at what point are you heading down to the locker room and what is it like entering a Super Bowl locker room after the game is over?
1: Uh, it's like going through airport security, kind of. I went down probably 10 minutes after the game ended because when the team wins, they do all of that stuff on the field afterwards. So no one actually gets to the locker room for a long time after the game. If Something, you know, and we had a little bit of a buffer at the end where we could figure that they were probably going to win, so we didn't need to worry about being down there if they lost and came off the field immediately. Even if there's there's so much stuff going on at the Super Bowl that there's a little bit of a buffer there anyway. But if somehow, you know, the Rams had made some incredible last second comeback, like one on a hail mary. And. We we would have been sprinting, you know, because then all of a sudden they're going to get in there so much faster and you're up in the press box. The setup at that stadium was really good. So we got down there really fast. Um, And then you have a big pass that has a barcode on it. You scan it. Um, You know, there's little scanners before you go in the locker room and then they they shine a light on the pass to make sure that some sort of counterfeit stamp that they have on it is is there and that you're not an imposter and then you can go in and other than it being split into the two locations of the place with all the podiums and the actual locker room it's not that different than a normal post-game situation it's just a lot there's just a lot more people
0: you know what I always find interesting about the whole coverage is it's like um there'll be 500 media members around and we'll ask a participant, so what's this like for you? And it's like, we're actually creating the reality because we are part of the 500 media members. You know, it's like, this must be crazy for you because here I am asking you a question with everybody else. You know, like we're actually, right. we're trying to be flies on the wall. But we're actually the wall in a lot of ways, or we're the fly. We're, you know what I mean? It's kind of a weird phenomenon, yeah, the whole thing. It's totally true. I would, I would think from afar, there would be no team less enjoyable to cover than the New England Patriots. The coach never says anything. The quarterback's kind of a robot. They have very strict media guidelines. Uh, what is it to cover the Patriots?
1: I really like it. Now I think. There are times uh, even having barely dipped my toes into covering Washington. There are times when I miss that environment just in terms of what it offered in getting reps with sourcing and just kind of finding different ways to poke around and get stories and learn what's going on because it's a much more relaxed environment where you can, you know, know everybody who, who works in football ops and the business office and all that jazz, uh, which is fun when you're, you know, at my point starting out because you just have more opportunities to learn how stuff works and to learn who to go to in what situations when you're trying to get information. That's much harder in New England. You will never lay eyes on probably at least 60% of the team employees. They're just ghosts. Um, You'll never see them at the combine. You'll never see them, you know, walking through the building. You'd have to go to the team's media guide to put a face to a name. Other than that, though, I don't find them boring. I think there are always interesting stories. People certainly care about them, which is nice. And... The players, I think, probably aren't aren't as bad as they have a reputation for being. Belichick can be great. He just also might zing you, and then you're going to end up on Sports Center, and that's going to be a whole thing. But if you get over it, he can be very interesting. He's obviously got you know a lot of stories to share on the rare occasions that he decides to. So I don't know. I sometimes I think that whole thing is is a little overblown in terms of how bad they are as interviews. Mm -hmm. I think it's more just that there's this whole, you know, there are whole groups and departments of people who work for the team who you're just never going to see. And you're never really going to have a great opportunity to learn about how they do their jobs and how they, they, you know, fit into the whole organism. But the players are good. People care about the team. They've also gone to the Super Bowl every year that I've covered them. So, you know, aside from being more tired in February than I might be otherwise, really no complaints about them.
0: If you, if tomorrow they said, for next season we want to do a, Nora, we want you to do a a huge Brady feature. 3,000 words on Tom Brady. Could you get time with him?
1: I think so, but I don't know. It would be, uh, okay, well, let's try. I would probably go about it with... So with Brady, it's funny, with Belichick, it's a little bit different because he has this guy, Bears, who actually Dan Chauncey just did calm him about um, who's kind of his own personal media gatekeeper. Brady sort of has those in his life, but he's much more... He's going to say yes or he's going to say no. And I would probably just go up to him one day in the locker room. He is he almost never talks in the locker room he's he's a press conference exclusively guy but occasionally he'll he'll break that and he's certainly in there enough where you know you can chat with him a little bit so i would probably go up to him and float the idea take his temperature maybe do it a couple times try to plant a seed and then I would just ask, and he's either going to say yes or no. There's kind of no way to like will him into it or go through someone else who's going to try to convince him to do it. He's just, at this point, he's either going to say yes or no, so I would just cross my fingers.
0: Have you been able to skip the point in your career when you're a young writer and you're kind of nervous about approaching athletes?
1: No. No, I think this season was the first one where – that wasn't something that I thought about a lot. My first season, I definitely was a, at some points. I've never had. I haven't had too many. You know, someone yells at me to get out of their face, or mm-hmm. I mean, i you know, you you have a couple where you start with a line of questioning, and someone decides they don't like it, and things take. Oh, a turn. what's an example?
0: But, I actually like. I actually like talking about these. What? What's say? what's an <laughs> example of an uncomfortable interview experience for you.
1: Uh, When James Harrison came to the Patriots last year, it was this crazy thing. And of course, you know, everybody with the team is, is trying to put on a face and pretend that it's not weird that James Harrison plays for the Patriots. Now it was super weird. Everyone knew it was super weird. They were just pretending. And I think when he got there, he maybe did a three or four question scrum with a, bunch of people where he didn't say anything interesting. And I'm not gonna get the days of the week right for when he got there, but it must have been either a bye week. No, it was too late for that. Maybe they were playing on Monday night football. So the days were off. You know, it was one of those Mondays, Tuesday, Tuesdays, Wednesday, Wednesdays, Thursday kind of weeks. Um which is something that Belichick will sometimes say when he wants to filibuster, he'll just go through all the days of the week and just say, well, Monday's Tuesday, Tuesday's Wednesday, Wednesday's Thursday. And he'll just go through the whole thing. And then all of a sudden he's taken up 45 seconds. Right. Um, But I went up to him the next day after to Harrison, after the next day, after he did that scrum and said, Hey, like, I'd love to talk to you some more. And he said, Well, I only talk on Fridays. And f- whatever the configuration of the week was, I think Thursday was going to be Friday. We weren't going to be in there on Friday, on actual real life Friday, not football Friday. Mm-hmm. And so I said, Okay, well, we're not going to be here Friday, but Thursday's effectively Friday. So how's Thursday? And he goes, I only talk on Friday. And walked away. So I kind of played dumb and I could sense that frankly, no one else was, no one else had decided to press this particular button and, and push on. Hi, James Harrison, you play for the Patriots now. And I I swear you have something interesting to say about it. So I'm going to try to get it out of you. Uh, but so I played dumb and I went over to someone on the PR staff I think and and just kind of said, "Oh, hey, you know, I I was just talking to James and and he said that we could talk on Friday and I realized that we're not going to be here on Friday. So I think that means Thursday, right? Like can I make sure that, you know, he comes in and and we can do it?" And they were like, "Oh, yeah, sure, if he said." And I'm like, "Oh, yeah, he totally said." Um And being a little sleazy. Uh, But so then the next day, they, um, you know, I think someone went, he was probably in the the shower or one of the back areas and someone from the PR staff was like, oh, you're, you know, you're supposed to to go in the locker room so that you can talk to Nora. And so he comes in and he's mad already because I've pulled this thing where he was trying to not talk to me and... and, (laughs) um I kept going at it and so I just kept asking him about you know if if how he felt about playing for the Patriots and if he was mad at the Steelers and and what was going on and he got really mad at me but the thing was is that it was great like what he was saying was great because even though he was yelling <laughs> it was true like everything that he was saying was Authentic and it was how he really felt, which easy, you know, easier said than done in that locker room a lot of the time. So he was saying like, I've never, when, when the first time like Bill Cower cut me, I went into his office and he said, you know, do you have any questions? And I said, why would I, why would I have any questions? Why would I care what you think? And blah, 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 blah. And I, I, I'll feel that way anytime someone tries to get rid of me and, and, So the whole thing was great, but he was really mad at me and was like messing with a towel and sort of trying to be all menacing. And it's James Harrison. So he's very menacing. And I'm standing there being like, I'm just not going to break eye contact with this man. I'm, of course, terrified, but, you know, you just work through it. And I knew that the stuff that I was getting was really good. So it was worth it. But then at the end of it, I was just like, okay, well, thank you and ran away. Thank you, Mr. Harrison. Goodbye. Yeah. Like, Thanks for your time. <laughs> and he's like steam coming out of his nose.
0: You knew he wasn't going to hit you. That's the thing. It's not like he was going to hit you. He was just pissed off.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there's always, I think not to, not to get too far into it, but like he'd come in from, he'd come in from the, the like shower room and I think was wearing a towel and was maybe trying to be a little intimidating with, you know, you're coming and talking to me in in a stage of semi undress, which is of course a, a part of my job, and so I think there was a little bit of of that. But I was like, you know what, eye contact for the win, and I'm not leaving.
0: You know what's interesting is you hold the position. The first woman to cover an NFL team was Leslie Visser, who covered the New England Patriots for the Boston Globe in the 1970s. So about 40 years ago, she was not allowed in the locker room. There were no restrooms for women in the press box. She had to literally leave the press box, go into the stands, find a bathroom, come back. She would have men make all sorts of passes at her players, make all sorts of passes at her, ask her out, you know, make sexual comments, blah, blah, blah. And I feel like in a lot of ways she would say this too. I think like she did it. So women of your era wouldn't have to go through that shit. And I wonder, here you are now. You are a woman, you are covering an NFL team. Are there complications being a woman in 2019 covering the NFL or do you feel like everything has been pretty much worked out?
1: Yeah, well, no, there's definitely complications, although the bathroom thing is, is not one of them. The bathrooms at NFL stadiums are like my sanctuary. I can just go in there and like be by myself. Um, <laughs> there's never any line. I guess I would love for there to be a line because it would mean that there were more women around, but still. Also, if you were, satisfying. if you were,
0: if, if you stayed in the women's bathroom, you would not be able to watch Stefan Gilmore play defensive <laughs> back. in person. So you're going to need to make a choice on that. You have to make a decision on that.
1: I'm building a very, very, very weird life for myself in terms of how <laughs> I spend my time. If I'm hanging out in empty women's bathrooms and NFL press boxes
0: and exactly.
1: watching Stefan Gilmore break up passes. Um. Yeah, I mean there's there's tons of complications, but I think they're way fewer and further between than, you know, what you were describing that Leslie had to deal with and that a lot of people had to deal with her before my time. I will say I I don't think I've had so few problems with players. I think in general they're really respectful and Particularly, actually, I I do give the Patriots credit for this. There's an organizational discipline there, and I I think it seeps into how they interact with me and with the other women who are covering the team. I would say that they are there. I've probably had fewer issues with players in, in that area in two and a half years. In New England than I did in five months in Washington. And I just think it says something about the way that the teams are run and their sense of consequence, basically. Right. But in general, I think players kind of get a bad rep in terms of how they, they treat women who are in their locker rooms. Cause I think in general, they're really respectful. You maybe run into more issues with, you know, the, the front offices and the agents and the, Sort of people who are maybe making the rules and enforcing them, as opposed to taking direction.
0: Last week, I had the uh, the Eagles beat writer for the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, Zach Berman, on, and I told him about my bar mitzvah in uh, in nineteen eighty five, and uh, the sadness I felt when my bar mitzvah was over because it was all this, everything led up to this bar mitzvah. A year and a half of stupid training and Hebrew lessons and. Then the bar mitzvah comes <laughs> and it goes and it's over and I'm like fuck that's the end of my bar mitzvah and here you are today I, I'm are you still in a hotel in Atlanta is that where you sit right now yes um do you feel like the party's over and now you're just like sweeping up the floor is it kind of a bummer when a Super Bowl ends
1: oh yeah although it's funny this one hasn't hit me as hard as I remember the the Houston one the you know 28 three comeback I, I think maybe it had something to do with the city. I just remember the next day, you know, Houston had put on a great Super Bowl and we've been going around and doing all this stuff. I remember going, walking outside of my hotel that Monday morning and just staring at the Houston Convention Center, which is this just massive, gray, architecturally boring monstrosity and going, oh my God, it's all gone. And all we're left with is this big, dull spaceship looking thing with carpet from the 70s. Like, where are we? And that sounds very like existential and weird, but I totally remember feeling like that so strongly that year. But although I, you know what? I think it, that probably had something to do with the fact that I was about to, you know, switch jobs and go somewhere else and do something that I wasn't totally sure how it was going to work out. And, and so it was probably personal and in, in a way, I don't know. I don't think it's the sort of football's done thing has, hit me yet, but it it probably will tomorrow. It usually does. Um once the once they do the parade. This will actually be the first time that I I can see the parade because I left Houston on Tuesday of that Super Bowl. Um which meant that I missed it. But it does feel a little bit like kind of like leaving summer camp. I don't Like, you you don't really know when you're going to see all these people again. Although with with the football calendar, the scouting combine is in like three weeks. And semi-ironically, although I guess it's not really ironic, it's just branding. The bar at the Marriott, where we're all staying here, is the same. Like, it's called High Velocity. It has the same name, same design as the bar at the Marriott in Indianapolis, where everyone hangs out at the combine. (laughs) So you've got all of these, like, football writers. We're hanging out at this bar going, like, hey, see you in three weeks at exactly the same place, essentially. So it kind of feels like we're about to do it all over again.
0: One thing I always did like about big events, whatever, you go to cover the Royals, and oh, they're the Kansas City writers. Hey, guys, let's go out for barbecue, blah, blah, blah. You go wherever. Covering a Super Bowl, does it feel at all like camp as far as are you hanging out with the writers? Are you meeting up with friends? Are you sort of going about town with other writers once you're done hitting whatever deadline you have to hit?
1: Totally. All the time. It's so fun. I mean, and it's also, this was one of the first uh, big events where I think all the girls kind of got together and hung out and it's super fun and it totally feels like that. And you, yeah, it's, it's great when you get to know people in the different cities and then you all kind of live parallel lives in a weird way and you have so much in common that even if you don't, know someone super well, you feel like you can get to know them really fast. Like right. there's a woman named Brooke Pryor who covers the Chiefs for the Kansas City Star. And I met her at the AFC championship game. We'd, I think we'd done a podcast together earlier this year. So we'd been on the phone and we'd talked to each other, but we'd never met. We hung out a ton this week. And, you know, people thought that we'd known each other for a long time. And we're like, well, no, but we do effectively the same thing. Most days. So it's not that hard to kind of have a relationship with someone like that pretty quickly because you're like, no, I get what the challenges that you face are. I get a lot about what you enjoy doing and it just kind of makes sense. So that's, that's absolutely a blast.
0: Nora, seriously. Uh, first of all, thank you for doing this. Second of all, congrats on the career. It's just cool. I, I I feel like you are a, I really do. I feel like you are a really good shining example. That there is hope in journalism for young writers, because you hear a lot of doom and gloom, obviously these days, and blah, blah blah blah. I just think there are opportunities there if you're willing to bust your ass, and and bust your ass. And I think you're you're a uh, you're sort of a, a, a very good uh, symbol of that.
1: Thank you. I also agree with that. And just like quick soapbox moment, I always like when when I was in college, people hear way too much doom and gloom. Yep. Like, it's just everyone knows. I think there's sometimes this this feeling that people my age that, you know, and millennials, we don't realize that it's a tough job market. Trust me, any college student who's interested in getting into journalism knows <laughs> that it's a hard job market. Right. I was, And mm-hmm. there were so many times when I felt like, OK, so do you want me to not do this? Right. Like this thing that people think they care about so much and they do care about so much you want to discourage me from doing it. So I always, I'm always happy when people want to say like, it might not be glamorous all the time. You know, you might have to maybe do some things that you might not be thrilled about, but if you love it, like I totally think that there are opportunities out there and, and yeah, so you're right.
0: Wait, I just want to say actually on that point, cause it's a good one. We've become real assholes about this job. And here's what I think. It's not as easy as it used to be. They're not the newspaper jobs are used to be there. It is just harder, period. But it's not harder than if your kid says, I want to become an actor or my kid wants yeah. to become a singer. And I would never tell my kid, no, you know what? Don't pursue your dream. Go to law school. Give it a go. Bust your ass. Like be better than the person next to you. Like, yeah, it's hard, but things that are great careers and joyful careers are supposed to be hard. So I hate that. When I have, when I have guest speakers come to my class, and say you shouldn't go into journalism, I mark down in my head, never have this person come back again. I freaking can't stand that. So I'm with you 100%, 100%. Yay. Nora, thank you so much. Seriously, I I appreciate this greatly.
1: Absolutely, it's fun.
0: I want to thank today's guest, Nora Princiati, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Nora on Twitter at Nora Princiotti and read her work in the Boston Globe. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts and Google Play and Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the fantastic MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember... Keep riding.